Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome again to the Explaining History podcast, and today I want to talk um, again a little bit uh, about Maoist China and an aspect of uh, Maoist Chinese uh, economic history that's perhaps less well known than the five-year plans and the Great Leap Forward. This is uh, one which was no less costly and arguably disastrous and a waste of resources Um, But it emerges for particular strategic reasons, and it helps us to look into Mao's thinking uh, between the the mid-1960s and uh, his death in 1976. And it's a policy called the Third Front, which meant the militarisation and industrialisation of large parts of Western China. Now, traditionally the most uh, economically developed parts of China would have been Manchuria and the eastern seaboard. The development of industry and the development of colonialism in China went hand in hand from the self-strengthening movement onwards. You can go back and find the podcast I did on the self-strengthening movement some weeks ago. But the east and the north were particularly connected by railway networks, by steamboat networks, and by the development of telegraph and all the uh, infrastructure of modernity. And during the Japanese occupation of Manchuria, it was uh, colonised and developed economically, again, in the most crude and exploitative manner uh, by Japan. But that said, there was still a great deal of industrial infrastructure left behind at the end of the Second World War. The third front was a development of industry, particularly China's defence industries, a relocation of heavy industry and a expansion of the railway network in western China And the reason behind this was Mao's obsessive paranoia about the Soviet Union and to the southwest, the development of America's war in Vietnam. It was not entirely inconceivable in the eyes of 
Mao that America could attack China from Vietnam, uh, and it was certainly far more likely in Mao's uh, point to Mao's perspective that there could be a war with the USSR. And it seems that the chaos and the fear and the paranoia of the Cultural Revolution amplify foreign policy concerns in Mao's eyes. Now, the Third Front begins its development in 1964, so it slightly predates the beginnings of the Cultural Revolution in 1966, and it continues all the way through to 1980, four years after Mao's death. So it covers a time span far greater than the Great Leap Forward, and that helps to account for the massive amounts of resources that it seems that it manages to consume. The Third Front consumed, for example, a staggering 40% of all China's wealth, and 60% of all new railways built after 1964 were built in Western China. This was done by mainly labour-intensive methods and the, uh, the same kinds of labour-intensive methods that you see during the Great Leap Forward. And considering that the Great Leap Forward had only ended two years beforehand uh, in the disaster of Mao's famine, some historians have suggested that the Third Front is simply a continuation of Great Leap policies. I'm not so sure about that myself, as it really, the, the third front kind of comes from a very different place. Uh, if the Great Leap Forward was Mao's attempt to outshine the Soviet Union and to eclipse uh, the West as quickly as possible and to demonstrate that his path to socialism, i.e. using mass peasant labour, was the, the trick, um, and it was a, a kind of a real uh, display of Maoist arrogance, the uh, third front, it comes from a far more anxious, far more fearful place. The uh, the relationship, perhaps, between the Great Leap Forward and the third front could be expressed as this. Once the Great Leap Forward had ended in disaster, China is far more vulnerable uh, to the rising, or to the power of the Soviet Union, and the ability to demonstrate to the Soviet Union that China has a better route to socialism, a more robust um, basis in the Chinese peasantry, had been shown for the error that it was. Uh, and instead, um, a rapid militarization of this uh, Western flank between China and the Soviet Union was therefore essential. In terms of railway building alone, some of the conditions are uh, fairly, 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 fairly horrendous. So a lot of the building work um, had to go across mountains terrain. And when workers were allocated to tiny peasant villages and towns that had barely enough resources to feed themselves, bear in mind we're still in a, a period where famine is a, a prevalent uh, factor across much of China. The um, towns and villages were forced to uh, put up men in barns, in grain silos, in whatever they could they could find. Some people ended up living in stables for a long period of time. A rice porridge congee was the staple for workers who uh, lived by the railway lines and worked uh, by day and often 
on night shift and would have to move camp as the railway line grew. Many would grow vegetables um, along the route of the train tracks. It showed you how slowly the, the train tracks um, were put down and how slowly the railway network uh, developed if there was time to, to do that. And this, these vegetables would supplement the peasants' diets. Um, a working day was eight hours of hard physical labour, and they were paid far below the average um, labourer's wage. There was a culture in Maoist China of uh, as much as you you find often in the Soviet Union, like Stakhanovite kind of culture um, of self-sacrifice, of uh, voluntarism for a state-led, um, state-directed society. Voluntarism is an, it makes an interesting appearance within that kind of culture. Um, and it was expected that Chinese workers would um, want to sacrifice, would want to work for um, wages far less than um, would consider the, the average, uh, because they were building the future, building a Maoist future in China. And this should be almost ideologically reward in itself. Um, so this self-denial was uh, encouraged. Um, of course, Chinese peasants had almost no interest whatsoever in embracing yet further hardship in the interests of developing socialism. Instead, uh, they were coerced into uh, lower wages and party cadres ensured that uh, there was no opposition to this. Most meagre wages were received uh, in kind. Uh, peasants would receive a fifth of their wages in cash uh, and the rest would be accounted for in their daily expenses, such as their um, in inverted commas, accommodation and whatever food they consumed. The way in which work was managed on the railways was quite um, chaotic, to say the least. When deadlines um, loomed and sections of the track had not been completed, workers were forced and bullied into offering additional voluntary labour, working unpaid overtime. At the start of the project, there were some 660,000 uh, members of the uh, People's Liberation Army, or what was referred to as the Red Army Railway Corps. And this reflected a, another uh, idea that was borrowed directly from the Soviet Union, which was the utilisation of soldiers as a labour army. This was a, originally a Trotskyite idea that soldiers, once they completed active military service, could then be used for any kind of uh, heavy labour, and this labour would be transformative. You can uh, bring, say, for example, half a million men to a particular region to build dams and roads and that kind of thing. Um, you'll have an industrialised uh, modern economy before you know it, so the thinking goes. The third front has been uh, seen largely as uh, an economic failure. Uh, the resources that were pumped into it, and if you remember those stats from earlier on, 
Um, if those had been applied to eastern China, where there was existing industry, where there was existing infrastructure, then GDP in eastern China would have dramatically increased uh, and grown at a, a faster rate. There's often a reason why industries and infrastructure flourish in the places that they do. It is based around population centres expertise, knowledge, skill, resources, and that kind of thing. And the fact that the Eastern Seaboard already had uh, an advanced centres of economy uh, meant that this was probably the place in which one should play to one's strengths. And if you look at post-Maoist China, again, it is this part of China that has really taken off during Deng Xiaoping's reforms and uh, that sort of thing. However, Mao understood very little about economics. Mao um, had no time for it as a concept, really, and he was critical of characters like Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping uh, when they considered uh, the practicalities of uh, economic development. Um, he dismissed this very much and, and viewed this as uh, a sideshow from his broader ideological visions. And Mao believed once again, as he had done during the Great Leap Forward, that by the mass mobilisation of the Chinese people, all at one, in one go, uh, using uh, ideological zeal as the inspirational force, that it would be possible to transform a vast region of China. Most of the railway lines were incomplete by 1973. And the reason why this is important is because the height of Sino-Soviet tensions in the late 60s and early 70s, these railway lines would have been the means by which troops would have been taken to the front and uh, other armaments as, as well. So the confusion and the chaos of the development of the Third Front uh, had would or would have had significant consequences had that actually been a war. There are border skirmishes in the late 60s, but the war that Mao anticipated with the Soviet Union, which led to the immense, immensely um, fearful and paranoid um, anti-aircraft drills and the digging of bunkers in Beijing and all sorts of extraordinary actions and uh, misreadings of Soviet intentions, uh, this war never, never eventually comes. Now here's an extract from Jonathan Fenby's uh, Penguin History of Modern China in which he describes the Third Front. A vast programme was rolled out in a supposedly safe mountainous region of western China. 380 factories and their labour forces were moved inland from coastal areas. New enterprises were built, operating on a self-contained basis, cut off from towns and villages. As so often with Mao's sudden initiatives, everything had to be done at once. Planning was rudimentary and costs soared as a result. While projects fell further and further behind schedule and spread a severe economic damage. This third front almost doubled spending on construction between 1966 and 1970 to 894 million yuan, with expenditure in the southwest leaping to nearly a quarter of the total. 
the new development ate up huge amounts of coal, power and steel. Pursuing this and all-out civil war, the Cultural Revolution, simultaneously, while keeping the general economy running and the country under some form of overall government, was beyond the bounds of fantasy. I think the interesting thing that Jonathan Fenby picks out there is the idea of sudden initiatives, that everything that Mao had uh, launched in China, every major initiative that had inevitably become some kind of grand catastrophe, such as the Great Leap Forward or the Third Front, had been cooked up in semi-secret Um, had been launched on the party and then on the nation in a short space of time. Normally Mao would announce a new initiative or hint that some kind of change was coming by writing in the People's Daily or in uh, other party newspapers. And then there would be an immense uh, flurry of activity of people attempting to interpret what Mao meant and whether it had implications for them. A lot of it would be said in various aphorisms and euphemisms and subtexts and that kind of thing. Um, And he was deliberately cryptic to keep his opponents, his enemies in the party, uh, on the back foot. And so much of the ability of party bureaucrats to plan ahead and to interpret Mao's wishes effectively and to interpret new economic initiatives um, in a way that would have a a minimum impact on the population and maximise economic and strategic goals. Um, Much of this was massively hamstrung. You have to bear in mind as well that China's experts, the intelligentsia, um, much of the university uh, departments, China's academia, uh, engineers, architects, designers, planners, had been purged during the Hundred Flowers campaign. Now, we talked about the Hundred Flowers a long, long time ago, maybe it was last year, perhaps even the year before, Um, but you can find it on this uh, podcast if you search for it. Um, Mao lured the intelligentsia of China into open criticism of the party. Then when the criticism reached uh, levels that he was uncomfortable with and it was all personally directed at him, he purged them. The difficulty with this for China is that any group that was likely to place a break on Mao's ambitions to be the devil's advocate to suggest that what he was saying was unworkable had now been swept away. And a leader that is immersed in their own hubris, their own arrogance, and has throttled all voices of dissent, is normally in very dangerous company, i.e. their own. The moving of factories inland had been directly modelled on Stalin's moving of Soviet factories away from the Nazi war machine in the first part of the Operation Barbarossa. Um, Stalin, uh, Mao was a great admirer of this particular feat. There was scant regard for the industrial workers either. Now, previously in this uh, podcast, we've talked about how the peasants were used for their labour and treated extremely badly. The industrial workers had a similar experience. Frank Dakota writes, um, at Panjihua, a forbidding barren region 
with large mineral resources in the south of Sichuan, a huge island steel complex emerged after 1965. Tens of thousands of construction workers were sent from all over the country to dig coal mines, lay rail tracks and build power plants. The railway alone, tunnelling through hundreds of kilometres from the new steel city to both Chengdu and Kunming, cost 3.3 billion yuan. One member of the youth corps that was um, part of the first contingent to move to Panjihua uh, in 1965 said, We didn't have anything, not even coal to cook with, and the hills were covered only in scrub brush that was hardly fit for burning. We wandered around with just one set of clothes, a wide-brimmed hat to protect us from the sun, and a canteen. As for transportation, we had nothing but our own two feet. But no amount of hardship could stand in the way of the third front. The impatient chairman told the Ministry of Mining and Industry that I cannot sleep until we build the Panjihua Iron and Steel Mill. Concerned about the lack of capital, he donated the royalties of the Little Red Book and his other writings to the cause. Now, the third front was not as catastrophic as the Great Leap Forward, inasmuch as it didn't create a famine that killed 40 million people. But it was a vast misallocation of resources on a roughly similar scale. And the fact that a similar famine didn't repeat itself is perhaps merely good fortune on the regime's part. Um, the disruption of the Cultural Revolution brought much of the work to a halt, as it did across China. And as you've heard uh, from the previous um, segment from Frank Dakota and his uh, The Cultural Revolution of People's History, 1962-76, there was scant little regard for um, organisation and planning to ensure that the impact on people, on uh, workers and on peasants was uh, limited and uh, manageable. And the local people in the regions that the uh, workers and peasants had been shipped to also had to put up with and deal with um, this vast increase in populations, uh, given very little support by the state in order to do this. One only has to have a look at contemporary refugee crises in the Middle East and Europe to see what mass migration looks like, and unplanned mass migration as well. This was planned mass migration, but without any state intervention to ameliorate any of the uh, side effects. Uh, in small towns across China, vast queues uh, for food, sanitation, water, clothing and shelter emerged and it was this combined with almost no planning and the fact that everything was done in a climate of panic and fear that was generated by the cultural revolution itself that was going on uh, around uh, the workers and also this sense that um, the Soviet Union and perhaps even America based in Vietnam uh, were close to spelling doom for Maoist China and this resulted uh, in a significant overrunning of all projects. That all projects were by and large badly planned, uh, cost far more than they were budgeted for. Often projects, factories, towns, railway lines 
lay incomplete for long periods of time. And this led to an immense squandering and wasting of resources. Pan Zhihua managed to first start smelting steel by uh, 1970. Uh, another mill at, in Juiquan uh, in Gansu province uh, was its design was changed six times and eventually it took 27 years for it to start producing steel. So the kind of takeaway point from all of this um, is that this was in the 20th century one of the biggest uh, allocations or misallocations of state resources um, of all time. It is an economic failure, second only to the Great Leap Forward. And the only distinguishing feature, really, is the fact that it wasn't accompanied by mass famine. Now, I hope you found that useful and informative and interesting. Um, if so, uh, and you'd like to support us on Patreon, there will be a link in this podcast to our Patreon page. Also, if you can give us a good review on iTunes, that would be greatly appreciated. It's a much more cost-effective way than forking out for Patreon. So um, get over to iTunes, give us a good rating, give us a nice write-up, and we'll be much obliged. Um, We'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. I'm really, really glad that you're here listening to us and part of the growing audience. Um, We'll speak to you soon. All the best. Bye-bye.